This is Do We Like Movies. It's a podcast where two guys review individual movies, sequels, and occasional television shows. In this show, we talk about our experiences with them, and we answer the question, do we like this movie? Welcome to Do We Like Movies. I'm your host, Angel. And I'm your shady side host, Javi. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, shut up, you Sunnyvale bastard. <laughs> I think we had a discussion about this like before we did this episode. That was your <laughs> idea, yes. <laughs> well, yes, except you basically accused me of being a Sunnyvaler. So I, I was like, all right, fine. <laughs> we didn't even make it like 10 <laughs> seconds into the conversation before I started besmirching you. <laughs> <laughs> I literally just sent you a text going, oh, wouldn't it be neat if we introduced ourselves as one of us from Sunnyvale and the other one from Shadyside? And he goes, yeah. He's like, you seem like a fucking Sunnyvale bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Oh, right, cool. Then. I was just I was just hoping you were having a good day. <laughs> All right. So this movie is... Well, it's a trilogy, right? It's a series of three movies that are all interconnected. Um, it's based on the works of R.L. Stein, who, you know, I'm not sure how much modern audiences know about R.L. Stein, but uh, a lot of younger, I mean, a lot of older people who are like, you know, more in line with our age, probably, if not approaching, than already in their 30s, uh, you'd remember R.L. Stein's like Goosebumps books, which were huge in the 90s, along with like a Fox Kids like television show <laughs> that came with it. Um, I, I was kind of late to this one. A lot of other podcasts that I listened to, you know, for my own amusement, uh, started covering this and I chose not to listen to a lot of those episodes or like any episodes on this. Cause I just started thinking about it and it just seemed more and more likely that it was going to be something that was worth covering on this podcast, especially because, you know, Netflix series are very popular amongst our uh, audience <laughs> the the like you know still like one of the like it's in one of our top 10 like episodes of all time like in terms of downloads was we did like bird box on netflix like in year one <laughs> it was like our third or fourth episode of the show like that's still like one of the most popular episodes of the show so uh and we did a live which a lot of people like were into so Coming back to Netflix is definitely something that uh, interests the listeners of this program. It's all about accessibility. Like the big thing is that you got to with certain movies, especially when it's like those universally owned streaming sites, like when it comes to Netflix or Hulu, Netflix, which actually makes a big deal about Netflix original content and Netflix branded content. Um, yeah, those are the ones that we really got to strike while the iron's hot. Andrew and I really like kind of doing our own thing and we really like very much like this the, the meetings for these shows are a couple text message threads being like hey i want to do this movie this week okay or me you know shooting a bunch of shitty movies and kind of like <laughs> just berating angel until he finally submits to my will <laughs> but pretty much we're not one to really always be like oh yeah the top on trends but also every once in a while you know, when we do check them out, we're like, this is this is fun. This would be worth talking about on the series. 
or on the on the show and that's pretty much what happened with me in this show or i mean this mo- um this movie series was just like i watched 1994 or was it 96 oh, no God. the first one okay so the trilogy of the fear street movies part one is 1994 that was right okay cool part two <laughs> is 1978 and part three is 1666. Hey, that's right. <laughs> but yeah, like I was watching 94 and I'm like, you know what? This has potential. And if this really get, does get turned to a series, I can see us doing them all. So I'm glad we waited till the entire thing was done so we can finally like talk about it. Yeah. So, okay. So a little bit of background, I guess, on this is... Uh, this movie has been in development or a, a adaptation of Fear Street has been in development since the 90s. So it makes sense that it starts in 94 since like, you know, the mid 90s to late 90s is when, you know, people are trying to get this made. Um, I guess eventually it, it ended up at 20th Century Studios, which is formerly 20th Century Fox. Um, uh, what's it called now? I guess like. I don't know if it, I don't know if it's like owned by Disney or if this is a Disney property or whatever at this point, uh, but you know it's it's one of those things that has languished in, you know, d- rights hell probably for a very long time <laughs> until this is finally like arrived. I have not read any of the Fear Street books, mm-hmm. you know, and again, my uh, really the only thing I know about Arl Stein is. Uh, the stuff he did with Goosebumps, the books, and I guess the television series based on the books. He also um, had another series called The Haunting Hour, which was more for tweens, mm-hmm. um, which was a little bit more serious, a little bit more. I mean, yeah, it was still it still had kind of like that goofy horror feel that Goosebumps had. But then, like the the thing about Fear Street is that this is his young adult series. Like the idea is that he's like catering. If you think of Goosebumps as like kind of like your introduction to horror and a lot of kids is kind of like learning not to be afraid of horror mm-hmm. or learning not to be afraid of the monster under the bed sort of thing. The, the the Fear Street series is more now like kicking it up a notch and getting kids more into the genre. So this one is more focused on like your high school seniors and there's a lot more cool like action and violent scenes and a lot more gruesome deaths and a a lot more of your traditional um like especially like 80s 80s and 90s slasher and horror tropes there so it's one of it's one of those series that um yeah and it definitely does feel like a young adult series (laughs) the other interesting thing about this i have to say okay so we just finished doing a trilogy a horror trilogy that's revolved around you know demonic stuff and let's be honest like a lot of where horror has made its hay in the last decade has been supernatural demonic haunted you know like we've gone back to supernatural occurrences as like the main thing in horror whereas like in the 80s you know and in the late 90s thanks to scream we were you know it was the slasher film that was popular and i feel like we've gone a very long time without the slasher film like really getting any kind of a focus and i think like we've had moments of it here and there like for example you know the the movie your next does bring in incorporates uh, the slasher genre stuff like the strangers incorporates mm-hmm. the slasher genre and i but i feel like 
after Scream because it had deconstructed it so much and, and kind of turned it into a bit of a, you know, meta joke. Uh, yeah, a parody uh, of itself. Right. And, and, and the, <laughs> the slasher film reboots of the 2000s didn't help, right? Rob Zombie's Halloween, while I enjoyed it at the time it came out, has definitely fallen in esteem uh, in the later years that I've watched it. Like I've, I've remember everybody. It is canon that Angel thought that the Rob Zombie Halloween was better than the original John Carpenter <laughs> Halloween. I, and I want everyone to remind him that at all times. <laughs> um, you know, Nightmare and Friday, they all had their like remakes that were boring. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 03 is probably the best one out of all the remakes. It, mm-hmm. it, it probably still holds up as the best one of those slasher remakes. But, you know, it's like we, we've been gone from it for a while. And I feel like outside of moments that we've gotten it, like, for example, certain elements of It Follows, which there were stuff like there's stuff in this movie that just smacks of It Follows for me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's neat to kind of be back here again. Like the beginning of this Instantly, I think a lot of people talked about, especially with the 1994 uh, first one, that it was bringing people back to stuff like Scream. Yes. So, um, I guess unless it's unless you want to go into what your experience with this was initially, or if you have any pre-story thoughts, uh, we can go ahead and just get into. Yeah, uh, let's jump in there because I think both of our experiences were we watched it at home. At our televisions yeah. on Netflix. <laughs> All right. So, Fear Street Part 1, 1994. It starts off in a mall. Um, and it feels, just from the beginning, like it feels very Scream, right? Like, we've done Scream on this podcast before, so we understand, like, you know, what the reference is. <laughs> in this and i didn't realize how scream it was like until you know okay so we have the opening of the movie that's set around a character named heather watkins uh she works at a bookstore inside a mall um she i guess it looks like the mall's about to close down and she's among the last people that are working there um the other one is uh a guy named ryan who's working in like i don't know if it's like a halloween shop or a or a like a hot topic Spencer's kind of deal. I don't know, right? If it's um, '94, I guess. Like, hot topic was kind of becoming a thing, so I can see that being one of the things that you could be working at. But I also really love the idea of a year-round Halloween store. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. So so it looks like they're looks like he's into her or like you know what i mean like it seems like one of those like weird things where she's probably really into like where he's probably really into her but she doesn't seem as much in- interested in him but at awkward least, like, teenage love yeah i mean but at least like she feels like she you know it, it it's not someone who's predatory or feels dangerous to her she seems mm-hmm. comfortable enough to like seek him out when she notices that something weird is happening uh, mm-hmm. But they, you know, he ends up, I guess he's leaving. Uh, she's got to close up her shop. And next thing you know, we get the really, you know, throwback slasher introduction where it's like her hearing sounds, her like looking in the dark. And finally she gets like, you know, attacked by 
this a masked figure a la Scream. And the funny part about this is the music in this, I don't know if he does it for the entire series, but in this opening, the music is composed by a guy named Marco Beltrami, mm-hmm. who actually composed the music for Scream. So if you listen to it, and, and I caught this because I've seen Scream so many times and I'm a fan of that movie, the music in the opening of this is like very Scream-like. <laughs> and now uh, I discovered exactly why, which is like because the guy who did the music for Scream does the music for this opening as well. Quick non sequitur, I think the sound design in this movie and the soundtrack in this movie, fucking A1 steak sauce. Because I feel like all the mu- all the music choices were fantastic. That's something that really is like, I think maybe there's one that one weird thing with the music where there was a song that came up after 94, but a lot of like, you know, Angel knows this. I'm a huge grunge and like punk fan. So there's a lot of grunge music in this one. <laughs> but I think in the, just the entire series alone, like as a whole, they, they do a really good job of picking a lot of music that fits tones, um, fits the vibes and really sets the tone for what the film is supposed to be. And yeah, they, like the way they play with sound. And I think, like you said, I didn't really think about that until I actually, I like did a little bit of d- digging on, on 1994 where I was like, oh, that actually does make sense why so much of this first scene does feel like that. Ha- uh, I was about to say Halle Berry. <laughs> Drew Barrymore opening. <laughs> Don't know how I fucked that one up. <laughs> but um, You yeah. write your own horror movie where Halle Berry is like murdered in the first five minutes. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much the opening of Scream 2. <laughs> it's not just i mean it's not just an opening to scream like i mean obviously like we've talked about how like and not even just us any any horror podcast worth its salt has talked about how psycho is like really the grandfather that like introduced (laughs) introduced like killing your most famous actress or or killing a you know character that you thought might be the the lead in this uh oh immediately I 100% thought Maya Hawk was going to be the main character. Like, that's Ethan Hawke's in... I forgot. Crap, I forgot who her mom was. Um, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, I, I remember thinking, like, oh, crap, this is going to be the main character or following. Oh, Uma Thurman. Uma Thurman is her mom. Oh, yeah. That's right, but yeah. I remember thinking, like, oh, crap, this is going to be our main character of the series. Oh, nope, she's dead. <laughs> and, and, and one of those things like you know while she's running away from uh the skull mask uh killer and like she comes up on the tableau of all the like the janitor staff or like the straggling staff that were behind like disemboweled and gutted it was like oh shit like this guy totally gave me vibes to when uh drew barrymore's boyfriend gets killed in scream mm-hmm. and then like i love the fact that you think she's about to get away you're like oh crap she's fighting her hardest and then the dude just ends up tackling her and just stabs her to death in front of the cops you're just like oh my god this what is going on here <laughs> and it was one of those things because i thought this was gonna be a kids on bikes type of horror movie where it's like Oh no, like we'll probably get a couple deaths. Oh. We're not gonna get anything too crazy. Thank God it's um, not. Can I just I say know. that before we get into this? Because even though I enjoy it with a Netflix series like Stranger Things, for example, I cannot deal with it just I feel like too many things use it as an aesthetic, right? Like yes, uh, yes. Stranger Things did it. Um 
it doesn't and it feels like it's a step too far super eight does it like it's just like there's all these modern movies that try to just like ape the spielberg richard donner goonies like yeah just kind of deal right it's like at a certain point enough is enough like <laughs> like we get it everyone loved the 80s let's move on what i actually appreciate about this is is it actually it feels more lost boys than it does like yes <laughs> that's a good way of putting it yeah like you know we talked about lost boys how like there was a version of that script that was like a kids movie and then eventually it becomes like these older like kids and stuff like that it's it, this feels like you know it's it, like it tries to become more of a sexy teen movie. This one is like, I feel like it straddles the line. It, it's it's a movie that's interesting enough for younger kids who are you know people younger than us who are watching it now. You know, as their introduction to slasher movies. Because spoiler mm-hmm. alert, you know this may be the introduction for a lot of people to stuff like this. You know, that's not true. not everyone is a historian of the genre the way the older folks are <laughs> not everyone's <laughs> dead inside like you and me and watch like even though i'm gonna go ahead and say i did mention i think i did mention it when we did halloween for our first episode of this show but i will mention it again that still maybe the best movie theater experience i've had in my entire life was you know three years ago my my wife and i uh went to catch a free screening of halloween like in october um in a it was like a free screening and it was in a theater full of like high school kids. <laughs> like it was clearly young kids. Right. Mm-hmm. And they were all watching the movie for the first time. And they like, you could tell that they had never seen it before because everyone was reacting to everything and watching it in a crowd of people watching it for the first time was still, it's still maybe the best horror movie experience I've ever had in a theater, but oh, cool. Again, Thanks for the invite. <laughs> again this is this is this is what that could be for for a lot of kids as well um so i'm glad that they it feels like with the scream references it's leaning into our 90s nostalgia for those of us who grew up in the 90s and then at the same time you know through the casting and kind of like you know some of the stuff it's doing it's not hitting that kids goosebumps audience it's very clearly hitting a younger demographic i'd say teenagers if not young adults um young adults oh, feels like the greatest target audience for this oh definitely this is this is appealing to that age group that love things like twilight or then four years later like uh it follows it follows or <laughs> i was trying to think well i was thinking more of the the those young adult novel series yeah yeah. Like you know, because I you know whether it's this or the the one with the with the oh my god why am I the one with J Law fuck why am I blanking on it the one with the Mocking Jay and Hunger Games there we go Jesus <laughs> that took me a while to get there um but yeah like it's one of the it, it definitely has that appeal to that like sixteen to maybe nineteen demographic you know mm-hmm. um so yeah after uh, Maya Hawk's character gets killed after Heather gets uh killed Ryan ends up getting shot by one of the police officers straight to the head and you know we get kind of like uh we get kind of a intro to to the idea of like shady side versus Sunnyvale right where we find out that there's one city that has it's a city of the haves and a city of the have-nots and pretty much a lot of the kids from the shady side 
um, of I guess town or the shady side or the town of shady side are very much like believe that they've that their town is cursed and a lot of them feel like they're kind of stuck there and like they can't get out and then you know they're constantly being looked down on by the more affluent people that live in Sunnyvale so right away this this second bit after the intro feels like it feels like the opening of Scream, like right after right after Drew Barrymore is killed and you're dealing with the fallout the next morning at school where you get introduced to the people who are your main characters uh, at the school where all the reporters are and stuff like that. And that's this moment. Right. And, and I think, as you said, what is interesting about this, whereas in something like Scream, it's all these like rich suburban white kids that are being stalked by a killer. Um, and it feels more watch screen like mo- with modern eyes and it much more feels like just a like they were predicting the kind of white male incel rage that was going to bring up bring about like Columbine and like the rash of you know shootings that were to happen in the next decade and stuff right this deals what I like about this is it, it, you are dealing with class divide in this and and I think it's interesting especially like in the school system because you know for those who don't know it's like it, schools now in this country are way more segregated than they've ever been and that's you know with people saying hey segregation doesn't exist anymore but you know despite the fact that it's not the way people would have you recognize what segregation is schools in different neighborhoods are very much looked down upon as someone who's in who's now like looking to enroll their kid in school how people look at schools and what you qualify for and what you don't all of that stuff it's just like it breeds a culture of us looking down on other people (laughs) segregation isn't real and then you know but redlining fucking local districts totally does happen (laughs) and i only laughed because or i was laughing earlier because it's like the more i think about it the more i think about skeet ulrich and matt lillard and in in uh what's it called uh scream like you kind of hit the nail on the head where it's like wow (laughs) they really hit the nail on the head on really fucking like just that yeah that toxic masculinity that was kind of starting to come up um yeah and i think and i think that's important because you and i have talked about how hard is a way of talking about social issues and kind of bringing attention to a lot of things that because i mean the big one of the big things in horror is always going to be the power imbalance right especially in slasher movies mm-hmm. where your slasher is the one that has the power your victims are the ones that don't and there's a lot of people in our country that feel that experience that power imbalance on the daily based on their sex, their gender, their race, like their faith. So and I think because of that, horror is always going to be something that we viscerally affect or we viscerally connect with. And I think this movie going the route of picking like classism and talking about, um, yeah, talking about that income inequality <laughs> between these two cities is a really poignant way of talking about it. The other one, too, like, you know, when I talked about uh, It Follows as kind of like something that this feels like it's taking a page from, It Follows, like, and this, what they share is, you know, you did talk about how slasher films are showing a bit of a power imbalance. The funny thing is in, is, I guess, what makes it so obvious and stuff like It Follows and this is the power imbalance comes, I mean, like, kind of like how we follow these heroes or how we look at the heroes in this movie are the people who are more you know like 
the power is against them. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and in this, it's very obvious. It's, hey, you know, this isn't just a serial killer movie. The idea is that this town is cursed because a lot of its population becomes serial killers. You know, like it just it, it does feel like one of those things where, you know, like you look at people who, you know, may have to resort to robbery, to, you know, drug dealing and stuff like that. And how we look at those things as being criminal. And that's how we want to deal with it as being criminal. And then we don't take enough time to think about the fact that these are people, you know, who are under such difficult circumstances that, you know, the rules of right and wrong don't really apply the same way that they would to you and I. Like the desperation is what creates an environment of this. And <laughs> in this, it's like, yes, all the poor people that are stuck in Shadyside are eventually going to become killers and kill everyone else off. And it just, it makes it so much easier for them to avoid, you know, to avoid them and it's also not you know lost on me the fact that you know our two characters are you know of mixed they're black of mixed race at least and the fact that you know all the sunny veilers are white mm -hmm. <laughs> and i think it's important to point out that in the real world sarah feels sarah fears course curse i already fucked up my joke <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say Sarah Fears code a curse is actually income inequality. <laughs> Which but, hey. That's <laughs> eh, a little too real. But anyway, let's let's introduce our main characters, pretty much the, the group we're gonna be following for the rest of the series, damn near. Uh, we have Dina Johnson, who's our main character. Um, and her brother Josh. Josh being the computer nerd, Dina being the I don't even know if I can like really put an archetype to her. Because she doesn't feel like a final girl, like she does, like she, you know, she just she just feels like the main character, kind of like the protag, not necessarily the hero, but like the character we're gonna be following for this series. Um, just you know, has kind of a chip on her shoulder. Absolutely hates Sunnyvale, resents the fact that she has to live in Shady Side, and hates when people leave from one town to the next. A little bit of foreshadowing right there. Well, the other thing too is I think one of the things that I thought about while watching this is I feel like slasher movies either intentionally or unintentionally, they equate the, the idea of traditional femininity in women as being something that makes them weak. Right. Mm -hmm. So we, I guess Dina seems like someone who has more of a hardened exterior, Mm -hmm. But she is very much like a victim in the same way that Laurie Strode or, you know, Sidney Prescott or any other of these, you know, leading girls or final girls in these movies are. I guess the difference is there's also this thing where it, I think this this movie does more of the Sydney from Scream thing. To, yeah. Like because, you know, we talked about it when we did Scream that even though Sydney is tradition is a traditionally feminine girl and all that kind of stuff. And they do play her as like the virgin and everything which are kind of like older repressed ideas of sexuality in horror movies there is this point in the end of the movie where she's like not afraid to call you know the killers and start swearing at them and puts mm -hmm. on the costume and attacks them at one point and i think mm -hmm. that's that's where you know that's where dina feels more in the mold of that I think Dina isn't like Dina's a different version of the final girl because it feels like she's that from the entire film. 
like she doesn't really need to grow into being this character that's proactive and takes action she's kind of that character by default which i'm not mad about i actually no, really no. And what, like and seeing it what makes her more modern as well is that because she is her character is lesbian like she's also not putting herself like it's very clear that her character is not going to be placed in a gender conformity box where because she's a girl that she's going to do this or she's going to act like this like you know i i'm not saying that the fact that she's lesbian is what makes her seem less feminine i'm saying that somehow her character it portrays herself in a way that because she is lesbian or you know like it just it it feels less like she's tied to some of these gender norms the way other final girls have been Oh, yeah. No, I, I can agree with that. I see what you're saying. So aside from aside from our siblings, Dina and Josh, we also get Kate and Simon, two of Dina's friends, uh, Kate and Simon being actually the local drug dealers. <laughs> and it's funny because Kate is like this like prim and proper cheerleader looking girl like that likes to, you know, get straight A's and is involved in school. Um, Simon looks like the kind of like the kind of like the goof off friend that's always around but they just so happen to get like you know, they have this deal with the doctor at the local hospital that he writes some extra prescriptions and they essentially just sell pills around school <laughs> and it's funny because you know normally when this is looked down on like kate talks about it at some point she goes well how else am i going to pay for college you know mm-hmm. she's <laughs> like it's one of those things where it's like these traditionally like act, these traditional activities that we tend to look down on in, in society, that's just kind of how Shady Side gets by, you know? Yeah. And then we get introduced to also to Dina's ex girlfriend, Samantha Frazier, who is who I alluded to being the, the pretty much her closeted ex girlfriend who moved from Shady Side to Sunnyvale. Yeah. And in the beginning, they do this thing where, you know, obviously they give her a bit of an androgynous name. Um, you know, uh, so where you are basically left to believe that Sam is the male character that they see at the rally in Sunnyvale. And then it's the moment where you see her character for the first time where it's, you know, after, after Dina catches Sam and Sam's partner, you know, getting close, that's when she walks away. And the person that goes after her is Sam, the female character. So. Um, and it was a vigil yeah it was for the vigil for Maya Hawk and the rest of the people that died at the at the at the mall no I always I thought it was weird that Dina gets mad at Sam for like moving because that's such a weird high school thing to be (laughs) mad about your parents moved you to another city and it's like I thought that was dumb but I also chalk it up to like you know it's actual writing of probably what a high school kid would say. <laughs> the, the, the only problem I really have with this movie is the characters of Dina and Sam don't really feel like I can believe that they care about each other. I just don't understand why Dina cares about her so much that she's going to go through the lengths that she's going to in this in, in this trilogy uh, to get her, you know, to have her come out alive. Mm-hmm. It just it, it it seems not false, but I just don't get it. Yeah. There's there's nothing that the characters do in particular that makes me believe that they would go through all this. But it's because you didn't grow up on Fear Street, bro. <laughs> you don't know but what again, it's like. <laughs> I'm someone who 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 understands and believes that there are certain elements of this that aren't made for me, 
and whatever isn't made for me or doesn't make sense to me just yeah it is what it is right Mm -hmm. um so the plot of this story is you know this one is the more traditional like kind of opening this is the one that feels the most like a slasher movie you're by the numbers yeah yeah it's like you're getting phone calls there's the kids that are being babysitted, you know, like you have the babysitters, you have uh, the retro like stuff in the 90s where it, like it's taking you back to the era of Scream. Um, and it's a pretty neat like, you know, again, it's a pretty neat way to kind of take you back to a time that really doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it's I guess the kind of link in all of this is these care our main characters particularly Dina, start seeing visions, right, um, mm-hmm. of shady side killers, I guess. So it's uh, so Dina's and, brother, like Dina's brother does the research. Like he's the guy who's done the research on all the past killers in the town of Shadyside. All of these characters understand that for some reason, residents of Shadyside eventually become killers. Mm-hmm. Um you you get the impression that obviously there's a lot of like families in this side of town that are dealing with grief um because you know any one of them could have a family member that all of a sudden becomes an unhinged serial killer <laughs> and it happens every 20 some odd years or something like that mm-hmm. and they're all all these massacres take place at like varying degrees where it's maybe a couple people all of a sudden it's like a dozen people (laughs) and it's one of those things where it's like no one knows ever what triggers it sometimes there isn't it's almost like there's a curse or black magic and the funny thing is like you know like dina who's our main character is actually the one that doesn't believe in the witch story that that the other characters do right yeah um the idea is that you know they all believe that it's a witch that's cursed the town and that that's why like its residents eventually become killers. Yeah. Um, so I guess what kind of kicks off this movie is after the after the vigil, there's a fight that kind of forces everyone from Shady Side and Sunnyvale to kind of disperse all the kids anyway. And w- I guess when the Shady Side kids are going back to their high school, they have Sam and her boyfriend and her and the boyfriend's friend. Uh, start harassing them following the bus throwing stuff at the at the back of the bus so the shady side kids in retaliation start throwing a bunch of things including like a big cooler full of like gatorade and they end up forcing the car to crash and fall or you know go into like the woods and crash uh i think killing to the oh no no one died in the car accident um, not yet anyway. Haha. <laughs> but what ends up happening is that Sarah's blood, um, I'm sorry, Samantha's blood ends up like disturbing uh, or the car crash ends up disturbing Sarah Fear's grave and her blood ends up touching, I believe it was uh, Sarah Fear's severed hand, supposedly, which then causes Samantha to have all kinds of visions of like what Angel was alluding to earlier about the uh about the shady side killers and we get visions of a bunch of different ones including the skull mask we get the guy with the sack head that looks like or the sack the sack over his head that looks like um jason from i think it was friday the 13th 2 we get uh the we get the 
kind of like the greaser looking girl from the 50s that walks around the switchblade like we get a bunch of like cool visions of all these like original slasher characters um after that when everyone gets uh transported to the or, or you know when the when the police show up you know of course everyone on the shady side bus immediately starts kind of like denying any sort of involvement in the car accident the the Sunnyvale people are just kind of no no it was just an accident and it ends with sam's boyfriend kind of in not in not too many loose words essentially threatening dina and her friends um and saying that you know he'll be back and they end up taking uh samantha to the hospital as she did she was injured in the car accident so you know the the next night that's when we get the uh the rise of the of the skull the skull mask killer so dina and her friends assume that the skull mask killer is actually sam's boyfriend just harassing them and following them around and the thing is he shows up to everyone's house or he he shows up to wherever uh our main characters are but never really does anything but each time it, it ramps up and gets a lot more aggressive like i believe he kind of stands outside of dina and josh's house while while they're eating dinner and then it gets to the point where the skull mask killer is inside the house that kate and simon are babysitting the kids (laughs) so it just becomes like creepier and creepier and until essentially the kid the the our main characters figure out that the the what's it called that the killer is actually hunting for uh what appears to be samantha and you know this is where we get a lot of uh uh pretty much because i think you mentioned earlier angel how josh is kind of like the the researcher the true crime nerd Mm -hmm. um and it's a lot through him where we get a lot of the info or the the expo dump and where we learn a lot of the history about shady yeah classic nerd stereotype Pretty much. I mean, <laughs> fair to say he's Jamie Kennedy in Scream. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, so what ends up happening is that the skull mask killer shows up at the hospital trying to kill Samantha and immediately starts murdering people, including like some orderly, some one of the nurses. I believe he kills like a police officer, <laughs> which ends up resulting in, um, in, I believe, Dina getting his gun. And while or after the our main characters manage to save Samantha and as they try to run away, this is where they start encountering more of the serial killers. So this is where we get to see the killer from, I believe it's from 1978, um, which is the, the guy with the sack over his head. I'm going to call him sack boy, like for lack of a better term. <laughs> and, <laughs> And then we got our uh, our 1950s, uh, for lack of a better term, I'll call her. I don't know. It's Betty like Goop? the skull. The, yeah, the skull killer is very clearly a scream reference. Yeah. And then Sackhead is very clearly a reference to Sackhead Jason yeah. from Friday at Thirteenth Part Two. Mm-hmm. And also, if you're a more modern horror fan, maybe if you've seen something like The Strangers, is also something that's more familiar. It does look a lot more strangers than Jason, but because it takes place at a at a at a camp, it definitely has Jason vibes. Yeah, in part two, it's very clearly Jason. <laughs> yeah, so Simon ends up getting attacked by the uh, jitterbug-looking girl, 
uh, who's known for whistling as she murdered um, her friends back yes. in the 50s. Uh, her, her like insistence on singing, you know, the song or doing the tune um, is, is, is pretty creepy. I will give it that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, no, it definitely makes you feel creeped out. She ends up trying to kill Simon until Dina saves him by shooting the shooting the killer through the head. And it's at this point where we see that they've been they're reanimated corpses and that they actually recover from even like gunshot wounds to the head. So they end up getting uh, they end up getting Sam and as they steal an ambulance, they come they they start devising plans and ways to try to to try to you know kill the kill the monster or kill the monsters kill the killers essentially so they come up with this plan to trap to trap the i keep saying monsters they keep they to trap the killers within like a bathroom in the school and they end up like filling it with chemicals like ignitable chemicals (laughs) and they end up setting them on fire which causes an explosion and turning them into black goo and when they go in to try to check the bodies, they learn they see that immediately, like all the bodies are starting to reconstitute and get back. So they end up leaving again <laughs> and they break into a uh kind of like a pharmacy, kind of like a catch-all supermarket. And I'm like, oh, okay, so now they'll come up with a plan. So, you know, this is because at this point, this this movie still has that kids on bikes feel that I was talking about earlier. And I'm like, okay, like, I don't think any of our main characters are really going to die. But what ends up happening is they devise this plan to essentially, like, kill, like, have Samantha overdose um, after it was foreshadowed earlier, where I think Kate and Simon were talking about how some kid OD'd, uh, like, the month before or something like that from Shadyside. So their plan is to pretty much go find some drugs, have her take it, OD, and die so that she can come back and the reason why they think of doing this is because there was one person that survived the night camp nightwing massacre back in 78 where someone by the name of c berman was the lone survivor and, and keep that they, in mind yep Tuck that's it in a little your foreshadowing for part two yep, want you to... <laughs> and then um yeah yeah so c berman they, they assume it's because c berman died and somehow was saved um the the killers just kind of ended up skipping her so yeah the plan is that so the plan is they try to force the the overdose which doesn't really go through um and the other kids are essentially just fighting for their survival trying to keep her alive long enough for to, for dina to be able to kill samantha um when the <laughs> when the overdose plan doesn't work Dina resorts to like trying to drown Samantha in like this fish tank and at this point is when I'm like oh this movie takes a really dark turn because like there's a scene where like there's the kills right like the part where Kate is fighting off skull mask and I'm like oh she's gonna be all right like she's holding her own and she's like fighting him off and eventually she just like he choke slams her on the table where there's the like the bread slicer and ends up running her head through the head slicer, just like decapitating her. I was when I saw that, I was like, "Holy shit! <laughs> oh, this is gonna be one of those movies." And pretty much, you know, the because the big thing is, I thought this movie wasn't really gonna have any stakes, so I wasn't really into it for the first like hour and change. 
And then suddenly when I saw the way Kate died, I was like, oh, I am 100% back into this. <laughs> uh, uh, who was it? I think it's uh, Simon ends up taking an axe to the head, being killed by Sackboy. And at this point, they manage to, or Dina finally manages to uh, drown Samantha. And then her and her brother using EpiPens end up bringing her back by like just sticking her with like 20 of those motherfuckers. <laughs> And I mean, it works. I don't, I'm pretty sure that's not how epinephrine works. Like, I don't think even that many epipens have enough to bring someone back to life, but that's why I'm not a doctor. No, it, I kind of look at it as the same way as I look at the adrenaline from Pulp Fiction. It's like, that's not going to bring somebody back to life from an overdose. (laughs) You know, it's just for the sake of the movie story. It's like, that's what it needs to do. So I'm like, all right, well. The adrenaline will, from Pulp Fiction, at least had some sort of like, I don't think they would pop up and scream out and then say something (laughs) right after. (laughs) But um, I mean, yeah, definitely the EpiPens was, I mean, it's a creative thing. It's, it's whatever. It's a teen movie. I'm not going to shit on it too much. Um, So what ends up happening is that they, they take Sam back to the house and, you know, we think our heroes are are good. They're they're mourning the loss of their friends. Uh, Josh goes actually back to the, his, a, his 1994 aim chat room and starts talking to this girl called like the queen of darkness and that's kind of his friend that he shares slasher information with and he starts talking about how kate and simon were his friends and you know that they were heroes and that they actually tried to fight against the the killers and because essentially the the local police try to pin them for everything and tried to say it was a murder suicide pact because apparently shoving your head through a fucking bread slicer is a way of suicide. <laughs> but what ends up happening is that we learn... It's a really gnarly kill, too. <laughs> it is. It caught me super off guard. Basically, was... like, it turns our head into ground beef. <laughs> it was, dude. And it's funny because I, I have, like, a, a little, like, trivia fact from IMDb. Where apparently, I think one of the producers was like, nah, you can't do that. And the director was like, yeah, you can. So they like shoved the watermelon in a actual bread slicer and apparently it worked and everyone was just super excited. <laughs> and apparently that scene was done with like practical effects, which is really cool. Uh, but anyway, you know, Samantha ends up being possessed by an unseen force as we get uh, cuts interspersed where... Uh, we see someone in kind of like a cave dwelling using a book. And we see that her name ends up getting added to the list of other serial killers in uh, in Shadyside. And she ends up stabbing Dina in the kitchen. <laughs> and they end up uh, kind of like tying her up. And this was after Dina gets a phone call from C. Berman talking about how she'll never you know that you don't actually escape from sarah fears you just uh what's it called learn to keep on living or something like that it's something that effect right saying that no she's never truly done with you and it's like at that exact moment is when dina gets stabbed she ends up fighting samantha off they end up tying her up and essentially the the movie 1994 ends on a cliffhanger (laughs) it ends with uh kind of and also with like a next time on fear street and you get like a montage of kind of what to expect in 1978 um so 
I don't know if, how you want to do this. If you want to give our do we like it like right after each film or if you want to rate it based on the series. But yeah, that was pretty much Fear Street Part 1, 1994. <laughs> okay, so Fear Street Part 2. And I think in terms of do we like this, I think we can probably do at the end because it really does feel like a series. It, like a, like Because they, all three movies were released at once, you know, or at least the relatively short span of time as a television series is it just i would just throw that as at the end all right um, then so we'll give you our thoughts on part one at the end once now next on we're talking about fear street part two all right well i'm gonna spoil this because part two fear street 1978 is my favorite part in the entire series <laughs> Um, obviously there's the references to Halloween. There's the references to Friday. Um, and it just, it is way more my jam. You know, I do love scream and I have gone back to scream, but you know, just, it's because I grew up in the nineties. My nostalgia for the nineties is kind of like, eh, (laughs) like I've seen a lot of nineties stuff in it and the 70s being a decade i did not grew up in uh it's just inherently more interesting especially since they want to go 78 which for those who don't know is the year that halloween came out Mm -hmm. so you know that you're gonna get more of the late 70s early 80s slasher tropes in this one Mm -hmm. um so this one one kicks this one kicks off with uh gosh I'm going to keep forgetting Dina's brother's name. Please Josh. remind me. Thank you. Dina and Josh uh, kick off this episode um, with Amy in the in the backseat or trunk or whatever. <laughs> they are coming. Um, They're hauling ass to see Berman's house. <laughs> because right. they had Sam like restrained. So they're driving to see Berman's house for help. And, you know, we get to see that C. Berman is actually played by the Gillian lovely Jacobs. Jim. That's right, Gillian Jacobs. And it's funny because I told I was telling you earlier, I'm rewatching Community, and it's like all I know her as is Britta. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's, if you ever see the Netflix series Love uh, with her and Paul Rust in it, I think it's, it's awesome. I, she's fantastic in it. Most stuff that I see her in, it's just like she's a really good character. I was not expecting to see her in this. Neither so was finding I. out, and, and I honestly, because of how that first one, because of how the first movie killed off Maya Hawk right away, I kind of anticipated that Gillian Jacobs was going to be axed pretty early in this movie. Same. So the fact that was... she, the, the fact that she becomes kind of a main character until the end of this is actually the most shocking part. <laughs> For real. Like, I really was expecting her to get attacked by, like, Skullface or someone in, like, in the first five minutes. Well, right, because in the beginning, like, she's living the kind of, like, Halloween H2O Scream 3 lifestyle where she's become a recluse now after surviving a massacre. Uh, she's got the guard dog. She's got a million clocks around the house. Like, it's just... Like, you know, it's, yeah, she lives what, this lonely survivalist existence. <laughs> what was up with that? Uh, like, and that's never explained. No. Like, she has all those alarm clocks, and each alarm clock it has, like, a purpose. Like, one is to feed the dogs. One is to feed herself. One is for her to go 
like change and take a shower. <laughs> well, this is the '90s. It's you know they don't have iPhones with timers on them yet. <laughs> I guess, but I don't know. It was weird, but yeah, uh, it's just one. Of, and I guess like I just chalked it up to like her kind of how she's coping with after losing control in '78 and like mm-hmm. the trauma, and you know. But I don't know. I'm also not in the business of psychoanalyzing horror movie characters. <laughs> but yeah, like she, so she and essentially the kids just kind of like break into her house. <laughs> yes. They end up breaking into her house after she was trying to, um, you know, after she kind of had the, the a lot of those like tropes of like hearing things and like checking checking windows and shit like that and when they end up breaking in they explain that she's the only one that survived mm-hmm. um and they end up convincing her to to lock up samantha in one of the rooms and to try to help them find a way to beat uh sarah fears so you know they pretty much they the this movie is all told as a flashback through the eyes of what c berman's experiencing um and yeah, that pretty much takes us to 1978, where we get introduced to Ziggy Berman, who some of you might remember as Max from Stranger, Stranger Things, Things season mm-hmm. three. I've never, I haven't finished it. So yeah, I, I think she's, I think she's a series regular at this point. But um, well, for whenever they do another season of that show, <laughs> mm-hmm, that's true. But, but uh, yeah, no, she's uh, definitely it was a pleasant surprise seeing her in this. Um, it's weird because it's like I, I was reading like a thing on Twitter where they talked about how how it feels like the kids from Stranger Things like grew they they like aged ten years in like four years or something, mm-hmm. you know. So it's it funny to see like how young she really still is. And um, but you know it's a recognizable character. It's a recognizable actress uh, in this. She is kind of the outcast uh, girl in this camp. I guess because the other girls are sunny valians. <laughs> yeah, and she and that's is what the it seems shady cider. Like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, not only that, not only is Ziggy the the shade, which by the way, I think it's awesome that she's named after like Ziggy Stardust, <laughs> or at least that's her <laughs> nickname. But um, it, it's not only that she's a shady cider; it's the fact that since you know from her childhood, she's pretty much been spouting off about how shady side is cursed and that there's something evil in the town mm-hmm. you know so it, it's it's really interesting because this isn't something new that only josh was dealing with it's something that's like even as recent as like 20 years ago people were were already kind of putting together putting together those dots and yeah pretty much what ends up happening is that one of the sunnyvale girls accuses ziggy of like stealing her money so they end up tying her to a tree and trying to like burn her with the lighter and this just goes back to what i've always said is that fucking bullies in the 70s and 80s were sociopaths dude and she ends up getting saved by uh one of the camp counselors uh by the name of nick good and it's really important to recognize the good family because apparently they've been in in sunnyvale for generations so this is um, not to mention he's also the sheriff in uh, 1994. Um, so we also get uh, introduced to Ziggy's older sister Cindy and her boyfriend Tommy, um, which I just thought of Tommy Jarvis. Like <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I really want to go through all these character names and find out how many of them were like references to other 
uh, characters from slasher films. I'm pretty sure there's some that are, that are very common. Uh, but we also get introduced to to a lot of uh, well, this is kind of also where we get a little bit more um, background on the on the Jitterbug Killer from 1994, who's actually uh, named Ruby Lane, mm-hmm. and she's the one that does the creepy whistling music <laughs> or yes. the whistling as she killed her friends. And we also find out that she was a the daughter of the. Uh, current nurse at Camp Nightwing. So we, you know, we find a lot of interconnections in these, like, uh, in all these different slashers, like, origin stories. Um, yep, and she has, she has a, she, like, develops a friendship with the, Ziggy has a friendship with this nurse character. Um, and I guess her sister's also in this camp as a counselor of sorts. Yeah, that's so. That's the thing. Like, see, Berman, you're assuming that this is the sister, right? Like, right off the bat. No, I kind of from the begin. I mean, maybe the movie wants you to think that, but mm-hmm. I, I pretty much figured that uh, that C. Berman was Ziggy the entire time. Like, I figured that, but as like, I felt they named her Cindy just as the misdirect, and I'm like, it's probably Sadie. Sadie Sinks character. <laughs> but yeah, we end up also getting introduced to a lot of like a lot of the camp counselors. Like there's um what's her name? Uh Alice and Arnie, which are kind of like the burnout characters. <laughs> they're like they're like the the punk rock kids that all they do is smoke weed and fuck all the time. <laughs> yeah, the classic Friday thirteen like stoner kids who fuck who die first yeah pretty much they're the ones that they have to pay for the sin of being like young and horny (laughs) and then um i'm trying to think who what other this one is this one's the one where it has actually a lot more characters in it it does Uh, and 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 to be honest it's like while there are a lot more characters i think we can get through the story relatively quickly um they're all archetypes right Uh, i think the only difference is that the overly promiscuous sex having kids are not really the ones that are going to be you know engulfed you know and attacked first i mean you know what i mean like they're not going to be free of the wrath of the the killer just because they're the ones like sorry let me start over all right so these movies have a habit of killing promiscuous characters you know who are doing drugs and all that stuff i think the in the, the the inverse of this is in this movie you know it is uh it is the the more virginal goody two-shoe tattletale <laughs> characters that are going to be the ones that are you know most affected by the curse they're the ones that pay the biggest price yes <laughs> So uh, Nurse Lane ends up um, having like the, like she's been becoming obsessed with why her daughter pretty much became a serial killer. So she's been doing a lot of research without people knowing about it, just kind of doing, trying to understand what's going on at Camp Nightwing and where the, where the camp lies. Because as we learned later on in this film is that Camp Nightwing stands between Shadyside and uh, Sunnyvale in what used to be the original settlement settlements way back in like the 17th century 
So it was kind of like that middle ground where both towns would meet. So, you know, she ends up having these visions where she believes that Tommy Slater is actually going to be the next person to, to snap, for lack of a better term. So she ends up telling, um, and, you know, so she's kind of like the harbinger uh, archetype from slasher films where she pretty much says, um, you know, you're going to die one way or another tonight. And she ends up trying to stab him. And at this point, Christine, ha- uh, Christy has, oh, summer, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm thinking of Cindy, sorry. Uh, Cindy just kind of clams up and does nothing as Tommy tries to fight her off. So eventually he ends up knocking her out and the police end up taking her away. Uh, however, we start seeing that something there, there, there's now a change within Tommy where he starts uh, having certain visions um, and kind of has like weird dissociative episodes um, throughout the rest of the day. Uh, Cindy ends up finding, I think it was Cindy and I forgot the, the, what the other stoner friend's name was, Alice, I think. Um, you know, they're trying to find drugs in her office <laughs> and they end up finding like uh, Nurse Lane's uh, journal and like some maps showing where she believes uh, Sarah Fears's body was, was buried. Um, so uh, Allie and, I'm sorry, Alice and Arnie ends up going to get stoned and wanting to go find the body of the witch to which Tommy and um, Tommy and Cindy pretty much got to go follow to keep him alive. Meanwhile, that night back at the camp, we have the color war, (laughs) very unfortunately named, (laughs) but pretty much what it is is it's a big game of capture the flag between the shady side kids and the Sunnyvale kids. And I really like the scene where they introduced the idea of the color war because like the, the, the Sunnyvale kids, like Sunnyvale has never, or the camp counselors, like we never lost a game of color war before in our life or in all of our town's history. And he's like, we're not going to lose again. And pretty much all the Sunnyvale kids get super hyped. And then they <laughs> send like the hippie camp counselor girl. And she goes, I just want all of, all of you to have fun. <laughs> yeah. Because the entire time she can't even give a speech because she's too busy eye fucking the dude from Sunnyvale. I'm surprised that when she said you know, sure everyone should just have fun, that no one was throwing tomatoes at her. Boo! I know it was <laughs> it was definitely that kind of movie. I was hoping that would happen, honestly. <laughs> uh, yeah. After that, um, during that night, uh, our group split up. Uh, Ziggy ends up getting close to Nick Good. Um, who ends up, you know, they have a little flirtationship where he talks about how much he likes uh, horror books and talks a lot about Stephen King because everyone knows nothing, women like nothing more than to talk about Stephen King books. Well, in the late 70s, early 80s, probably a lot more. I mean, this is the time of Carrie and The Shining. Like, you know, it is most definitely the most popular period of Stephen King's like life. Like this is when, like, it's hard to underestimate like how how big Carrie was when it when it came out. Like, Carrie was the Iron Man of Stephen King movie adaptations. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it was a movie that like people thought might have been big, you know, might have like been the start of something, but it ended up legitimately 
creating the career that Stephen King has now of being a guy who writes books and just sells his books for buku money for television series and movies. Yeah, and as we know, he's great at starting stuff. Can't end it, though. <laughs> oh, I had to get it in on Stephen King just one time for the one time. <laughs> but pretty much, like, you know, they start talking about Salem's Lot and a lot of, like, his other works, um, which really surprises Ziggy because she thinks, you know, she she's very much like that anyone from Sunnyvale is, like, trash people that don't know anything about anything cool. And here's Nick just kind of like disproving that and proving that he actually does care about her. Um, so much so that he, they actually plan revenge on the Sunnyvale girl that was torturing her earlier, where they come up with this idea to lock her in a bathroom and using Carrie actually as their, um, as their uh, inspiration, they end up filling a bucket full of like different bugs and just you know, setting it up so when she goes into the bathroom, it ends up falling on her and like getting all in her hair and freaking her out. <laughs> very juvenile prank, but very funny. Um, Creepy camp counselor, counselee relationship in full effect here. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> now, it could be that he's very young. Maybe he is a 16-year-old camp counselor. Look, we both work recreation. For We've worked with high school kids in the past. Yes. And so there was always weird to me whenever we had high school kids working in our, in our camps. And, you know, like we had a really old teen that was like 16 and still in the program. Then one of our coworkers was 17. And I would just be like, that kid can't tell that other kid what to do. <laughs> Because he's technically only one year older or a couple months older. Yeah, I mean, is it still creepy? Yes, one hundred. It's weird. It's, you know, it's if nothing else on earth, you know, and, and and if it's not illegal because they're both younger, it's still weird. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um. So yeah. So, Allie or Allison Arnie, as well as Tommy and Cindy. Uh, end up going to these places where they end up where uh, Nurse Lane had dug up a lot of the a lot of the graves looking for uh, Sarah Fierce's body, uh, and they end up finding like this tunnel uh, that's like yeah they they end up finding like this tunnel where they go underground that's like beneath the camp and stuff, and they end up finding a like this stone that has all the names of the shady side killers and they see Tommy's names on it too. And when they cut back to Tommy, you just see him completely possessed. And he like takes an ax and starts just murdering everybody. <laughs> but first he starts by killing Arnie and the girls end up escaping through the tunnels. And so back in, you know, um yeah, so the girls end up escaping. They're pretty much stuck there. But in the meantime, Tommy goes back, pretty much goes back up topside and starts picking off like campers all over the place. And you get some very gnarly kills. And it's just like, you feel bad because this movie does not shy away from murdering children. <laughs> and that was honestly the biggest shocker in this movie. I thought it was just going to be the camp counselors that they were going to go after. And it's like, no, he went after campers and counselors alike. <laughs> Like there's the scene where the where the kid from from Shady Side is like 
he's the jail keeper and then all the Sunnyvale kids end up just like leaving him alone because they <laughs> save the kids and then they like shove him on the ground and leave <laughs> yes and it sucks because it's the nerdy kid that apparently was really cool with Tommy earlier in the day so when he sees Tommy he thinks Tommy's gonna save him and Tommy ends up murdering him with the axe I'm just like Jesus this, this these movies are fucking brutal dude. <laughs> ends up killing um like a, like a bunch of the counselors like yeah it, it's it's gnarly like I'm, I'm not gonna lie a lot of these kills are really fucking intense um well well while well, uh alice and cindy are trying to get away alice has to like jump um from like this small like elevated part of of the cave and she ends up like breaking her ankle which looks all messed up and gnarly um and while they're down in the caves, that's when they come across like these, what looks like a witch's room, kind of like a place where spells are taking place. And there's like this weird, like mass of organs that's alive and moving. And like when Alice touches it, she starts like seeing all these flashbacks that the killers and their victims live through. It's really crazy. Um, she ends up leaving or she ends up freaking out um until cindy's able to kind of calm her down and at that point her and cindy are able to like kind of settle each other's paths because you really do get the vibe that they were once friends but then something happened where where one of them was trying to move forward and the other one was trying to stay where she was and cindy trying to get out of out of shady side was like trying to leave anyone from shady side behind essentially um so they end up learning to or they end up you know, becoming friends again and knowing that they kind of need each other's help to get out of here. Um, yeah, after coming across a bunch of the a bunch of the dead counselors and a bunch of the dead campers, um, Nick and I forgot what the other counselor's name is. Doesn't matter. He was just um, he was just axe fodder anyway. Yeah, <laughs> axe fodder who was in Halloween 2018. Him, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I knew I remember that. Where he kid. was like <laughs> Michael Myers fodder in that one. <laughs> He's just making a career of being like fodder in slasher movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you know, we could just watch him like get murdered in slasher movies for the rest of time. <laughs> I can't wait till he's an exorcist and then Pazuzu kills him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like that dude ends up getting killed too. Um, Nick and Ziggy manage to escape and kind of like and start getting everyone uh, back on the bus to try to evacuate the camps. Um, to which Ziggy realizes she left the girl from Sunnyvale in the bathroom, so she goes and she saves her or tries to save her, and then she ends up fighting <laughs> Ziggy and beating the shit out of her in this outhouse. Um, and while they're fighting in the outhouse. I believe that's when, uh, yeah, that's when Tommy ends up killing the other, uh, the guy from Halloween 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, axe fodder guy. Axe fodder guy. <laughs> you just call him axe fodder. <laughs> <laughs> so they managed to get back to the mess hall. Uh, by, by they, I mean Cindy, uh, Ziggy, Alice. Uh, because I think Nick ends up taking like an axe to the leg or some shit and he tries to hold off um, Tommy long enough so that Ziggy can escape. So when they get back to the to the mess hall, um, Tommy ends up like killing Alice there and the two sisters got to f- essentially fight him off. 
Um, Ziggy almost kills him. Um, yeah, Ziggy almost, uh, uh, she almost kills him. But then I, th- who was it? I think it was uh, Cindy. This is where I get lost. Like, there's so many fucking characters in this movie. <laughs> I think Cindy finally kind of has her moment where she's able to get revenge and she attacks Tommy saving uh saving her sister uh but essentially you know killing her boyfriend but we get to see her art or her her um character arc where she she has the more traditional um what's it called the final girl arc that you see in slasher movies because Cindy is very much the character that you see go through this virginal state where she, you know, she even says where that her and Tommy hadn't had sex yet, uh, where you see her clam up at the first sight of violence uh, in front of her to the point where she's like finally progresses character that's willing and able to do something when she's in the heat of the moment. So she ends up saving her sister. So before Cindy decapitated Tommy, uh, Cindy, Alice, and Ziggy were coming up with the plan to return the severed hand of Sarah Fears back to the body in her original bearing burial place because the idea was that they can probably settle the curse by resting her bones finally. So they end up grabbing the hand and the two sisters after after killing Tommy make a mad dash to the hanging tree where they believe the uh, body Sarah Fears was laid to rest. So as they like haul ass over there, they uh we get to see all these different serial killers from different like eras that include like Ruby Lane. Um, who else? Like there was that the milkman killer. I think um I think Josh calls him that in part three, and like some dude with this gas mask from like the 19 like tens or something like that. Just like a lot of these really cool character designs for these uh or for these uh slashers end up like coming from the woods chasing them and it's like they they end up um getting one of the they end up getting ziggy but what ends up happening was uh cindy ends up sacrificing herself uh by taking the hand and uh you know she ends up dropping it where she she ends up getting stabbed by i think the milkman or something like that or one of them and meanwhile um ziggy ends up getting stabbed to death essentially to death by another one of them so we get this like prolonged really tragic scene where like the camera like pans up and you just see um you know see them getting murdered and you're just like you know, you really feel for them because they've been like fighting the entire movie, and just when you think they're about to get away, um, you know, they they end up like like in the last possible minute. It's the same way you felt when um, when Maya Hawk's character gets murdered at the beginning of 1994, and Ziggy mm-hmm. Ziggy actually ends up dying until Nick finds her body and ends up resuscitating her with CPR. Not how CPR works, but okay. <laughs> it wasn't that she, it's like, she, yeah, she stopped b- breathing, but it was because there was more blood outside of her than inside of her. <laughs> but he ends up uh, saving uh, Ziggy. 
and this is where we get uh, the the payoff from the misdirect earlier, where C. Berman actually stands for Christine and not Cindy. Yeah. Because yeah, that's what I was mentioning how the how the <clears throat> movie tries to make you think C. Berman is actually Cindy, but you find out that Ziggy's actually her real name is Christine. It's and then the, she was the survivor. This is the best stuff in this part, too. Mm-hmm. Like the event ending scene where both of them are just being mercilessly stabbed at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's just like, oh my God. So you you really are wondering, okay, who the fuck are, who the fuck is this person now? Because it, it for a while it did get me because both of them were dead, and I, even though I knew who Ziggy was the whole time, I was like, "All right, well, what the fuck's gonna happen now?" Because she very clearly looks dead, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, somehow Nick Good like resuscitates her back to life, and you know, I'm stupid because I really should have thought something of that <laughs> as to why that didn't make sense. But you know, in in the last one, somebody was brought back to life with an EpiPen. So this series has already told you that like people can come back from the dead relatively easy. easy. Yeah. <laughs> Death is more of a suggestion than like a state of like it feels like a comic book universe in that way right now. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But I love the end montage where they're like they have all the bodies out and like people are being collected, the kids are getting shipped out um ziggy's getting put in the back of the the of the ambulance and you yep. can tell that's where like nick kind of sells her out not well, really yeah. sells her out but pretty much just, says like despite no. the fact that you know this movie spent the entire time telling you that weird pervert was like a character that you were supposed to like mm-hmm. in the end surprise surprise the guy who <laughs> is a camp counselor who hits on kids in the camp is actually a piece of shit <laughs> who would have thought <laughs> And not just because he's a pervert. <laughs> but I, I absolutely love that this scene is uh, scored with uh, Man Who Sold the World uh, mm-hmm. by David Bowie because, like, that song is about... It's like a weird cosmic horror song if you ever, like, listen to the lyrics because it's like... Or if you ever, like, you know, actually pay attention to the lyrics because it's, like, about how this guy's, like, almost fighting off possession and he's kind of talking to this entity that believes that they were kind of meant to be together at least that's the vibe i get from it from what i've read from it and essentially like the most terrifying part about it is at the end is the guy in the song ends up accepting the fact that he's possessed by this other entity and has to like now it's we instead of i and that's kind of like this weird possession stuff going on in this film it's the fact that there was the misdirect where you think c berman is someone else the entire time like there's a lot of cool like identity play in this film uh and i love that they cap it off with the with that song at the end um so yeah i think this where we go back to uh back to 1994 dina and josh um are pretty much still with christine uh, or Ziggy, and they are intent that the well, they know where the witch's body is, and now that they have the hand, they're going to they want to end the curse as well. So they end up finding out that the camp was turned into the Shady Side Mall, and that the tree at the middle of the of the mall is actually the hanging tree that um, Sarah Fears was uh, was killed at. 
And that's where Dina and Josh go and they dig up the hand under the tree. Kind of dumb that the hand is only a couple inches like below the dirt. <laughs> Let's just say that it, 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 it's supernatural reasons why it's there. Because yeah, whatever. It's not practical or logical. It's yeah, it's a it's a movie for teens, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so they end up uh, when Dina does reunite the body and the hand together, she get like her her nose starts uh, bleeding landing on the body of sarah fears and then she's like transported back in time and she get <laughs> and this sends us into part three of fear street 1960 or i'm sorry 1666 the one that i was the least interested in getting into and i'll say this okay so part one very clearly we're doing you know scream part two we're very clearly doing friday and halloween Part three, it feels more like we're doing The Witch from 2015. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and you either love The Witch or you hated The Witch. <laughs> I, Maybe I think it, The Witch is great. Get into I, I think The Witch is a fantastic movie. I saw it once and I was highly interested in it. It's not a movie that I go back to very often or a movie that I want to go back to very often. It's not a movie <laughs> I recommend too often because it is such a dense movie. It's, it's not that it's dense for me. It's that you need to have a thesaurus when you go through it, right? Mm-hmm, I, this part, this, this part, you know, starting part three, 1666, I'm already not liking it because I'm just not interested in this time period. It feels very crucible. It doesn't, I mean, despite the fact that it feels kind of like The Witch in, in terms of the actual, like, time setting, uh, The Witch is a lot more interesting and a lot more dark and a lot more frightening than this. Uh, these characters are just kind of, like, pulling off these weird early New England accents. <laughs> and I... Absolutely, and I told you about this. I absolutely hate the trope of like time traveling, or not time traveling, but it's like when you do period pieces, but based in the same time or based on a timeline, and then you take like actors from one and then just put them in the past. It's like I don't know. It just feels weird. I'm not a huge fan of it. I'll I say think this: it, a it series. On- this isn't like watching Back to the Future three where you're going back into the wild west and it's like marty and biff's families are like the only families that existed in that town this is more like these characters like these actors are all playing completely different characters um it feels more to me it feels more like this is dina like filling in the characters in this because it also just doesn't make sense that like older and younger versions of like actors are in this well it works because it's a vision i guess yes. is what they were trying to play this up as is that it, it, it's like dreaming right i mean like if you're dreaming of something you haven't seen before your body i mean your your brain like fills in gaps with like things that may or may not make sense but they're things that you can like it's how you kind of like put them together in your brain mm-hmm yeah, so I mean that's why I don't hate it in this movie. I just hate the trope in general, though. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm just not that interested in the period as well. Like, are we gonna do another thing where it's like, oh, it's witches? It's very clearly witches and stuff. And then the other one is like, you know, we're still carrying on the lesbian relationship, 
and you know, despite the fact that yes, one of the things that is the central theme of the witch is the fact that you know feminism is essentially the devil, <laughs> which is it, it is kind of how you know the metaphor of the witch works. Um, in this one, it's like you know, it, it attempts it, it's uh, in the beginning, it attempts to posit the point that uh. Dina is the witch or evil because of her lesbian relationship all the way back then with not Amy. <laughs> Samantha. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we get introduced to the good family, which there's Solomon Good and Elijah Good. Mm-hmm. There's the pastor, which is Cyrus Miller. I forgot who he played in the regular timeline. And then there's like mad thomas and caleb and then there's the the brother josh is now playing henry so yeah there i mean the big thing to, to understand is that this is the origin story and this is kind of filling in the blanks on what happened to sarah fears so um pretty much sarah lizzie and their friend hannah they meet um this widow so that they can get pretty much get ready for a party like because apparently people back in 1666 used to have like wicked wicked rad ragers and like <laughs> they would have bonfires where everyone gets fucked up in parties yeah like off of blueberries <laughs> <laughs> just fermented berries and shit so sarah ends up finding this like black magic book um and when they get to the party uh caleb is like trying to get it get it on with hannah um sarah ends up like defending her honor and i think she makes fun of caleb for having a boner (laughs) it was so bizarre (laughs) she was like she was like oh something about your lower horn or some shit he's like essentially saying just don't go fuck a sheep or something like that and everyone just starts pointing and laughing at this dude for having a boner it was like it's a really bizarre thing and they actually uh end up like sneaking away um and they so that they can go hook up um but you know what they don't realize is that they're actually being watched by mad thomas who's kind of like the town drunk um so he he pretty much starts kind of like guessing that these two women are are in a relationship uh, by which i mean uh sarah and hannah yes um so the next day uh pastor miller um he starts kind of or cyrus miller yeah pastor cyrus miller uh starts acting kind of like in a way we've seen before where um he starts kind of having like he starts acting different kind of like he's starting to get possessed much like tommy was back in uh, 78 or in the previous movie and then um and then you know like some some bad things start happening around the town like they end up losing their food they end up losing their fresh water but it all comes to a head when the children of the settlements go missing and we see that Pastor Cyrus has like killed all the kids and sewn their eyes shut and like yes. sat them in the in the pews at the local church while he gives like this sermon while his own eyes have been sewn shut. Yes. <laughs> this is the 
this was fucking sick, dude. I was like, what the fuck is going on? And so, like, the townspeople end up kicking the doors in under the church, and they end up finding a, they find this fucking crazy bullshit going on, and everyone starts like, you know, get becoming hysterical at um, at seeing what happens, what's happened to the children. So Sarah ends up finding Henry dead, like in the front in the front pew, mm-hmm. and- which is pretty shocking, obviously, even though the fact that this isn't really her brother and you oh, know, yeah. this isn't really dina's brother from the original like story it's still pretty shocking to see you know the actor like <laughs> having been killed and it's like as she goes and tries to check on her brother's body uh pastor miller like tries to run at her and with a knife until solomon is able i think it was solomon he picks up like a pitchfork and ends up stabbing the pastor mm-hmm. and killing him in the church so that night there's a meeting where the people are trying to decide what what's what's happening right so naturally everyone in the town assumes that witchcraft is the cause of all this yes so they're trying to find out who the witch is and why this is happening to the town and as people start um you know blaming one another and start turning on each other uh what ends up happening is caleb the drunk horny guy from the uh from the night before to that's the other part is all this happens over the course of like a week yes <laughs> it's not like the witch where it's kind of a slow burn and it feels like it takes weeks for it to finally descend into the ending of that film this one happens like all within days of each other <laughs> but pretty much caleb with uh using what mad thomas was saying about these two women being in a relationship ends up turning the town against Sarah and Hannah and accuses them of being the witches responsible. And when the two try to escape, Hannah gets captured. Um, and essentially the, the town, I think it, uh, well, I forgot who from the town, but they say that they're going to kill Hannah at dawn. Um, so Sarah ends up, finding her way back to hannah to try to free her um and she actually wants to go and use the 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 black the book of black magic she'd found at the in the widow's um home to try to make a deal so that way the devil can save hannah um but at this point she when she goes back she finds that the widow had her like throat slit and that the black magic book was taken um when she goes to try to when she goes to solomon solomon good for help um this is where yeah she goes to his uh she goes to his house and finds that there's like it, you know he she ends up like sneaking through and finding tunnels down into like the witch's chamber which uh, you know going back from the movie we previously just saw where um, <laughs> she starts kind of putting together that the goods are, are the ones that are kind of using black magic in this town. An, and awesome, th- an awesome reveal for me because, you know, this all feels very obvious, you know, that we're going, oh, okay, it's the witch. We're going to go back and see that the witch is not really a witch. She's someone who, like, somehow got these things blamed on her, but she's still, like, a supernatural entity that has cursed the town as she was dying. Uh, what's interesting in this is that it very much shows you that, that you know, Seraphir is not really the evil here. And she, in fact, is, you know, 
in that, in fact, it is the good family that are the great evil. Uh, I remember at this point, finally, that the sheriff from that first part <laughs> ends up being Nick Good from the second part because I mm-hmm. went through that entire second part and I hadn't even thought about the fact that this kid grows up to be the sheriff. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact they were telling you in that, like I just uh, forgotten completely about that sheriff character uh, from part one. And but also it's like he was very sinister in that first part as well. And it's like there was something not right about him. And now it's like, oh, yeah, well, of course, you know, he's like a, he, was, he was a pervert as a teenager. And now he's like a, <laughs> and now he's a devil monster. <laughs> so it's like you, you're just a piece of shit through like professionally, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> So the so Solomon reveals that essentially he he's practicing witchcraft for so that good things can happen to the good family and that they're going to get everything they want essentially for as long as the ritual is done every generation or so um or however long it, that it takes for them to do so that's his deal with the devil um so that way he can get power and wealth uh, he, he even offers to share it with Sarah, but Sarah ends up like running into the tunnels and they end up getting into this fight where like just this really intense fight where she ends up getting her hand cut off by uh, Solomon Good. So then we see actually how she lost her hand because I think everything leading up was saying that she like cut it off herself or something like that. Uh, when she ends up escaping, she gets arrested by the townspeople and she ends up convincing the towns, uh, the town people to uh, to spare Anna, Hannah's life, but she does swear vengeance on Solomon, on Solomon Good and her and his family uh, right before she's killed. And then um, while they, I think they just like chain her up and like dig her or leave her in a shallow grave. Uh, her friends, uh, Hannah, Lizzie uh isaac and abigail go back to recover sarah's body and grieve her properly as they like bury her in an actual grave um so that uh so so you know at the end of that you're thinking oh crap this is a short movie and then you get hit with 1994 part two motherfucker (laughs) finally yes let's go ahead and bring this back to something that's interesting (laughs) and I mean, the the reveal was good, but I just wasn't interested in being in this time period. So now this is the part of it where we're going to wrap up the trilogy, finally. Uh, Dina discovers that the goods are the actual evil uh, that is cursing Shadyside. Uh, She is able to tell, you know, adult Ziggy. (laughs) Um, And they are now going to go to this mall to enact their like ultimate like revenge which is you know we have to kill nick good because he's the one who's actually keeping this curse going Mm -hmm. yeah because that's what they find out they find out that's the firstborn of each generation uh that has to do it so that's what what the curse an interesting metaphor that can be taken away from this if you wanted to is the fact that you know the sheriff or the police officer you know, represents an oppressive evil that has been passed down from generations, <laughs> which, you know, I mean, you know, it's very, it is something that's widely known in this country that police departments were 
a lot of them began as slave patrols, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's one of those things where it's like, because we've never fully reckoned with the, you know, evil of our past, it's, it's, we are now cursed to be living like in the world that has like become what it is because of it. Yeah. So yeah, this is like it for it coming around full circle. Mm -hmm. So they come up with this plan to lure uh, Nick to the mall. And they end up setting traps to have essentially the shady side killers kill uh, Nick, effectively ending the curse. They go to the jail and they actually get the mall janitor, who we learn Nick had planned to kind of set up as the fall guy um, for earlier in the film, or I think way back in 19 in the first uh, part one. Where the, he was trying to set him up by saying that he was, um, what's it called, uh, like responsible for a lot of the graffiti around town. I don't know if he was trying to set him up to be the fall guy for the murders or what exactly, but um, we end up seeing him like kind of connect the dots when he sees the orange spray paint um, that Nick actually did carry in his car, which he joked is, you know, where he got him originally. <laughs> So uh, from there, they manage to, they come up with this plan to like using uh, Dina's blood. They end up mixing it with like glow stick liquid and they use super soakers to kind of like lead the killers into certain areas and using um, kind of like the store security gates, they manage to lock a bunch of the serial killers in uh, these different stores. And essentially the plan is that they're going to uh, pour like a bucket full of like D with Dina's blood in it over Nick to so that the, the killers can get a scent for uh, for him and try to kill him. Uh, however, Nick manages to escape after using Ziggy as kind of, uh, at, you know, using uh, Ziggy to kind of save himself. Um, but Dina ends up chasing after him. In the meantime, um, I think during this whole time, uh, Sam, who's still possessed uh, by the curse, ends up like taking off and chasing after them as well. So, um, crap, what was the kid's name? Josh. There we go. So Josh comes up with the plan of using the, uh, once they've like released the killers, to using the super soakers to cover the killers in Dina's blood. <laughs> and so everyone sprays all the killers and then we get the unexpected serial killer fight scene <laughs> where you see all these different killers from different generations start fighting and killing the shit out of each other and i love that you texted me last night and you're like am i watching a fucking monster fight and I was like, yes, Angel, this is a monster fight. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I absolutely love the monster fight. It's, it's cool. It, it, now, it, you know what it really felt like? That felt like a throwback to 2002's Freddy vs. Jason, which yes. is not a movie that a lot of people talk about now. But if you ever go back to it, and if we do ever review it on this show, it is a fucking fantastic movie. And it's probably one of the best crossover movies in existence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I am not fucking joking when I say that they did a perfect job of bringing in two separate worlds into one movie and gives each character like equal footing 
in being like, you know, it's one of those where anybody could win. And it's, it's, yes, that is what I thought about, especially because of how like gory, bloody, and destructive it gets. Oh, definitely. <laughs> they murdered the shit out of each other. They like rip each other apart. It's so <laughs> fucking cool. Which is very um, Freddy versus Jason, where they're like starting to rip limbs off each other during that fight. <laughs> Ruby Lane ends up uh, getting the drop on Josh and breaking his arm. But I think someone's Which able is to gnarly. See. By the way, yeah, it is. <laughs> I thought he was dead. I thought at first I thought she snapped his neck, and I was like, "Oh no, no!" Yep. That's exactly what I thought. I thought he was dead, and it was too late for him. Yep. But I, I think Ziggy or I forgot who had the gun, but they end up uh, shooting Ruby. Um, it's Ziggy. Saving him. Oh, Ziggy, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, Ziggy ends up saving him by shooting uh, shooting Ruby in the head. Um, meanwhile. Nick and Dina have a fight in the much like the uh Solomon and Sarah fight in uh earlier in the film, uh down in the tunnels, where what was it? Um where well Sam almost kills Dina, but Sam is kind of like able to incapacitate her, or she's able to get out of like her possession for a little bit and gets incapacitated. Uh, Nick and Dina are fighting where she almost where Nick almost kills Dina, but she ends up using the weird organ thing goop from uh, from the second movie, which kind of like forces Nick to look at all these visions and all this shit going on with with the victims and the original killers. And he gets to see visions of actual of what Sarah fears actually went through. Um, and kind of reliving all these deaths pretty much which end up disorienting him um, and Dina is able to take advantage and just kind of kills him stabs him uh, killing him and leaving him in the leaving him in the tunnels and her and Samantha end up like escaping and they end up finding out that the good family estate I guess for lack of a better term is still connected to the caves and they end up coming out from uh, Nick Good's house and like this like beautiful neighborhood in Sunnyvale just like a completely different town where for some reason we get a shot of a car accident like where a car gets hit by a dump truck (laughs) which I I, I don't get the point of that. That was super there randomly. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to be something that's going to be put upon later. I don't know. Who knows? But they end up cutting away and they give us like this uh, montage shot of the news uh, where it's revealed that I guess with the curse lifted, now the good family is magically, like no longer magically protected. So both towns immediately know that the goods are connected um, yeah, and Nick Good is like the guy who's ultimately being blamed for the killings that yeah. that were beginning at the beginning of this movie. So he, with him taking the fall, um, that saves Kate and Simon. Um, kind of their, it kind of re re uh, restores their memory, sort of thing, or it clears their name so that way that they're not associated with being the uh, serial killers. And then uh, the, f- the 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 movie wraps up with uh, Josh going back to school mm-hmm. and being like the super popular kid now, having survived like the sl- the the shady side slashers, 
and he ends up getting uh, on his cast a sign from this random girl who's revealed to be the queen of darkness or the queen of shadows, which <laughs> is the girl that he's been talking to online uh, yes. about serial killers. Really cute little moment. He's like, oh, snap, it's you. And they so they finally meet in person. And the film ends with uh, Dina and Samantha. Um, well, Dina making good on her promise from the first film, saying that she was going to get cheeseburgers and that they were going to go and they were going to have a picnic date and that they were just going to have fun together. Yes. And so they go to... S- and nothing says fun like having cheeseburgers at Sarah Fears' death or her gravesite. <laughs> I would love to have cheeseburgers with my soulmate at the site of a gruesome murder. <laughs> <laughs> So many of our friends died. Let's get cheeseburgers. (laughs) (laughs) And I would love to say that's the end. You know, roll credits. But we get a mid-credits scene where in the middle of the witch's chamber where for some reason, like, no evidence has been collected. (laughs) 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 There's just the little placards there. But we see two hands grab the uh, witch's book and end up snatching it away. And finish rolling credits, and that's the end of Fear Street Part 3, 1666. All right. So, uh, ultimately, Javi, uh, do you like Netflix's Fear Street series? Overall, yes. I do. I think like all together, once you watch them, I think if you watch this as a mini series, yeah, you, you, I, I like it more. If you watch it just kind of individually, I mean, th- this is definitely the sum of its parts. Like, are there movies that have done a lot of these tropes and a lot of these types of stories better? Yes, there have. Uh, part two is probably the strongest installment. Part one uh, is definitely really close to it. I guess it all depends what you're what you prefer, right? Like I like two, I like one. Um, three was weak. I was not a fan of the third one. Yeah, especially like not just the. Um, it just got too supernatural at a certain point. It's the I, difficulty of trilogies. Trilogies yeah. always have a trouble sticking the landing with that third part. <laughs> and it, it's weird because the third part, like if they had closed out more like storyline threads i would have been happier if they, if they were okay with ending this series i would have been cool with that to be honest i in my opinion we probably should have spent way less time in 1666 like it really should have been like a 10 minute to 15 minute vignette in the beginning and then mm-hmm. the entire movie would have been them back in 94 but because the know, 94 I, part was the strongest part of this movie. Well, that's what I'm saying, is that yeah. like if, if you're not aware that it's going to jump back to 94 and you're spending all this time in 1666, it's just really hard to get into that last part. Yeah. So um, ultimately, you know, I'm going to agree. I, I, do, I did like this as well. Um, I agree that the second part is the strongest part of this entire uh, trilogy. I did like watching this and you did mention that other stuff has done this like before and better uh, than this series did but it, it's been so long since i've seen something like this you know and it did have like that same feeling of something like goosebumps or are you mm-hmm. afraid of the dark like it really or, or like eerie like you know indiana i think is what it's called yeah eerie it, indiana it, yeah like it, it had that 
feel and i can't explain why or how but it just had that like retro feel of those like young adult kids like horror shows like from the 90s <laughs> and i appreciated something that like reminded me of things that i loved from my childhood uh like, i like recently i have re-watched episodes of are you afraid of the dark and they have like you know it's just it's it's such an interesting thing that you're just like yeah it's like damn it's like they used to put this on tv in the 90s like mm-hmm. for kids it's so wild to even think about it but uh i don't well, more than anything, I'm glad that I watched this. I think it's really good. I think it's worth your time watching. Uh, and I'm glad that we chose to do it for this podcast. You definitely got to watch it with the context of understanding this is beginner horror. Yes. And if you are dead inside and have been watching horror movies since you were like <laughs> six, like me and Angel, <laughs> then, yeah, you'll understand that, oh, yeah, this is a reference to Halloween. This is a reference to Friday the 13th Part 2. This is a reference to, like all these to scream like yeah like you're gonna catch those but the thing is young horror babies that you know piss babies that haven't watched any horror movies before (laughs) like they don't understand that i think it does do its good job of balancing this like like that like you were saying that rl stein introductory horror while still giving you like the gore and the gruesome deaths that you know, keep that make you a horror fan, you know? Mm-hmm. It does um, an excellent job of that stuff. Yeah. And and surprisingly, I think what made me want to watch this and want to do it on this show is that I've heard so many podcasts that I listen to, reviewers that I, that I, that I you know, read and listen to, that they've all had such positive things to say about this series. I think the word of mouth also carried it for me as well. So mm-hmm. we're not the only ones who may not be in the target age range for this, but seem to enjoy it as well. And I think it's awesome that this thing came out and it's one of those things that we all get to kind of enjoy together. So I um, will say this, if you're, you know, between the last three movies we reviewed and these three movies, I would say watch these instead. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> this is a much better trilogy than the one we just finished watching. <laughs> yeah. I guess watch Annabelle Comes Home. That one's fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, well, Annabelle Comes Home is more in the vein of something like this. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Um, all right. So we'd like to thank you guys for joining us for this episode. Uh, please continue to interact with us on social media and uh, review our show on Apple Podcasts. Um, it's, I'm pretty excited because uh, I'm getting ready now you know like the the word is starting to come out on on james gunn's suicide squad and uh i'm very excited to really talk about next week's movie and that is the 2016 suicide squad it is a movie that i legitimately have not watched from start to finish since 2016 when i saw it in movie theaters so this will be a it's going to be a big deal for me. Or I might have watched it one time when I bought it on video. I bought it on video. I own this movie, and I've legit only watched it once or twice. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to revisiting it and uh, talking about it next week. I cannot wait. Because <laughs> these next two weeks can either be my favorite episodes we've like recorded in a while or my least favorite <laughs> because in case y'all don't know i am a huge suicide squad like comic book fan and i can't wait to talk about it honestly like even the bad one 
and I became a fan of Suicide Squad through your lending your Suicide Squad graphic novels to me. That's right. So, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to talking about that next week as well. All right, so let's we'll go. Talk to you guys next time. Take it easy, y'all.